Well, good morning, everybody. It's a privilege to be here this morning with you, worshiping and studying God's Word together. Well, this morning we're going to continue in our series in Philippians, in chapter 3. I'm going to be reading from verses 12 through 16, so if you could turn in your Bibles there this morning, or swipe open your phone Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, just simply raise your hand as our ushers walk down the center aisles here, and they'd be more than happy to give you one to use for today or to keep if you don't have your own copy. Last week... We studied verses 4 through 11, and we were reminded of the all-important gospel truth that we can only be saved by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul used his own testimony to destroy works-based thinking by reminding the Philippians that you cannot purchase your salvation with anything. Our sin is against an infinitely holy and righteous God, and our entire person is corrupted and stained by sin. There is no amount of good works you could ever do to make up for your sin, because God's standard of righteousness is absolute perfection. You cannot wash off the blood stains from your hands any more than a leopard can change its spots or an Ethiopian his skin color. See, God requires a payment to be made for your sin, a ransom, but you cannot pay it, you cannot buy it with your obedience, your rituals, your traditions, or your status in life. As one pastor put it, trying to pay for your salvation yourself is like using monopoly money at the grocery store. It's just not going to work. That currency doesn't fly. It doesn't work. It's not sufficient. Only Jesus' death is the currency that can purchase your salvation. Your baptism doesn't save you. Praying a prayer once upon a time doesn't save you. Walking down an aisle, growing up in a Christian home, being a Christian for the majority of your life, avoiding certain types of sins, reading your Bible, giving your money and serving in the church, none of that saves you. Only Jesus can give you the righteousness you need to have a right relationship with God. And when he does, that is what we learned last week is called justification. You have been justified in God's eyes by Christ. But the gospel isn't just about being saved by Jesus. It's not just about gaining his righteousness as if that's the end goal. It's about gaining Jesus himself. Paul didn't, said he didn't trust in his human efforts anymore. He considered them to be unprofitable. In verse 8, he wrote, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain, what? Heaven? Glorification? No. Christ. That I may gain Christ. Once Paul was saved, he came to see the gospel in terms of knowing Jesus and growing in a relationship with him. This is what we call sanctification. All believers are on the journey of sanctification, of knowing Jesus more and more until the day when we die and are resurrected into glorification where we will know Christ fully. We are saved by Christ in order to know Christ. And so our text this morning then tells us that this knowing Christ, this relational aspect, this pursuit of him, 
ought to be the central focus of our life. So that begs the question, what is the central focus of your life right now? What are you most passionate about? What drives you? What would your spouse or your friends say is important to you? What do you talk about the most? What do you spend your time doing the most? Most of the time, we don't usually have just one single focus in life. We have our gaze constantly shifting. For you kids that it's on summer break, you're probably focused on not being bored, on having fun this summer, spending time with friends, watching movies, playing video games, or playing sports. If you're in college, you're enjoying the break, but you're also focused on your studies and your job, maybe your social life. For many of you, you're focused on your career, providing for your family, taking care of your children, parenting. That requires a lot of focus. Summer vacations to plan and execute. And then there's hobbies on top of all that. Home renovations to do, gardening, cars to fix, fishing, sports, you name it. There's nothing wrong with any of these things, of course, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there should be one central focus in our life. He says in verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What was it? What was the first importance? That Christ died for our sins. So according to Paul, the most important thing is the cross, the message that God sent his son to die on a cross for sinners. You could say that Paul lived a cross-centered life, and by that I mean that everything Paul did was dominated by the message of the cross. I think most of us would agree with Paul with a hearty amen, but we would all probably also recognize that we don't always live like the cross is first importance. It's not the thing we talk about the most. It's not the thing we're most passionate about. In many ways, we we often treat the gospel as if it's something you learn and attain, and then you graduate and move beyond. It becomes, instead of central, it becomes peripheral. It's like a computer program running the central operating software. It's in the background. It's important, but you're busy doing all the tasks and running all the other programs on your computer. Even though we should never move on from the cross, we can easily live with the cross coming in and out of focus. And you can tell this is happening when you lack joy or thankfulness in your heart. You can tell it's happening when you're not consistently growing in spiritual maturity. You could also tell if your love for God lacks passion, zeal, fervor, Or if you're always looking for some new technique or some new experience, some new truth to revive your spiritual journey. Our text this morning, though, is going to help us gain and maintain a cross-centered focus. And Paul's main point we're going to see in this text is that living a cross-centered life is the key to growing in our relationship with Jesus. So let's look at the text together. If you're able, would you please stand in honor of God's word and follow along with me as I read from Philippians chapter three, verses 12 through 16. 
Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will, will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Would you please bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, we, we recognize readily that we are weak. We are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the Lord that we love. And we know that If it weren't for your staying hand, if it weren't for the fact that you hold us fast, we would completely abandon the gospel. We recognize our frailty. We recognize our creatureliness and our sinfulness. We we long for your help, Lord. We come to your word seeking to learn how we can grow in our love for you And I pray that you would not only strengthen us this morning, but you would encourage us about the work that you are doing in and through us. For your blessing over this time in Jesus' name, amen. So if living a cross-centered life is the key to growing in our relationship with Jesus, how do we do it? That's the question that we should ask. In this text, Paul calls us to three actions that are necessary for living a cross-centered life so that we might win the prize of fully knowing Jesus. Let's look at that first action. First, we need to confess in verse 12. What is it that we need to confess? We must confess our spiritual condition, that we are not finished growing in our relationship with Jesus, that there is still work to do, that we are not yet where we hope to be. Paul himself confesses in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. What has Paul not obtained yet? What is the context here? He has not yet reached the point of knowing Christ fully as mentioned in the previous verses, verses 10 through 11. This will only come on the day of resurrection from the dead. So Paul humbly confesses that he hasn't arrived yet. And he does this because he wants to clearly communicate that the gospel is not about resting on your past achievements, uh, but about continual growth in Christ-likeness. It consists of a noble ambition to know Christ more and more each and every day and to feel a holy discontentment with your status until you are glorified in heaven. Now, it would have been easy to look at someone like Paul and think, that guy, he's already made it. That's a godly guy. That is a godly guy. You know, this person, Paul, he had seen and talked to the resurrected Christ. He was a chosen apostle. He had performed miracles. He had received a vision of heaven. He had been a believer for 30 years by this point of writing this letter. 
He knew what it was like to suffer for Jesus. He was literally sitting in prison right now because of the gospel. He was a guy who had been in and out of jail, beaten, left for dead, and regularly made all sorts of sacrifices in order to tell others about Jesus. After that kind of a, le- of a rap sheet in your life, you think, man, this guy's he's good. He's going to heaven. He's made it. He's arrived. But despite all that, Paul humbly and, a- and accurately confesses, I'm not there yet. I have not arrived. I still have work to do. He has not achieved the perfection that still awaits his death and subsequent glorification. Many people professing the name of Christ are the exact opposite sometimes. They live a very complacent life. There is no zeal. There is no passion. There is no growth. And they're okay with that. They look to the past and they claim that they have been saved by Jesus. And that's all that matters. They are self-satisfied instead of seeking satisfaction in Christ. But Paul demonstrates that this is not the heart or the confession of a true believer. Our spiritual condition on this side of heaven is always one of work in progress. So in addition to confessing our condition, our spiritual condition, we also need to confess that we have been saved for a Christ-centered purpose. Paul himself confesses in verse 12, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul starts using some athletic language here, talking about pressing on. Paul describes himself as a runner, straining with every fiber of his being to win a race. Now, I'm personally not a fan of running. Don't like it. Don't enjoy it, not at all. I love sports. I played basketball all through elementary school, junior high, high school, played some soccer in high school, but I never wanted to do any cross country or track. And after all, I mean, the Bible says the wicked flee when no one pursues. So, you know, I'm just kidding. I mean, the Bible says that, but that's not the point of the text. But whether you like running or not, all of us know that you've got to be pretty motivated to exercise. So what motivates Paul to exert himself? He says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, I pursue Jesus because he pursued me and saved me for this purpose. When Jesus took hold of Paul on the road to Damascus, when he brought him from spiritual life to spiritual, from spiritual death to life, he became obligated to pursue Jesus. This is the way it is for every believer who is called by God. Abraham was called to salvation and was consequently obligated to leave his homeland to follow God. David was called to be the king of Israel and upon God's call he was obligated to leave his life as a shepherd and follow him. When John the Baptist was called while in the womb, when Jesus called his disciples, they submitted to God's purposes. Well-known commentator James Montgomery Boyce put it, God's calling always puts an obligation on his children. So we learn about our purpose also in other passages as well. Most notably, Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called 
according to his purpose. What is that purpose that we are called to? Well, he says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's purpose in salvation is for us to be more and more like Christ. The question then for you, for each one of us, is are you living according to the purpose for which you have been called? Has Christ seized you? Has he grabbed hold of you so that now you are seeking to lay hold of him? Is there any evidence in your life that you are living in the power of his resurrection? Is there any spiritual sweat on your forehead that indicates you are a runner? Is there any evidence that you suffer for Jesus, that you live in the power of his resurrection? These are the fruits of a genuine believer who is straining for Jesus. All believers, though, need to be reminded to have a cross at the center of our lives because none of us are perfect. That's why Paul says at the beginning of this chapter, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. We all constantly need gospel reminders. It's so easy to let other things, even good things, even things God commands us to in the Bible, responsibilities, good things to become the priority of our life instead of Christ. When this happens, you just simply need to confess, regularly confess your spiritual condition and your Christ-centered purpose. Born-again believers have a new heart that is captivated, dominated, and motivated by a desire to grow. This new heart <clears throat> influences all of our priorities and goals in life. It's not always easy. It certainly requires sacrifice. But Paul said he considers all things to be loss in comparison to gaining Christ. When compared to knowing him, sacrifices made in this life aren't really a loss at all. They're a gain. So if after hearing this verse, though, you realize you don't see the fruit in your life, you don't see any signs of sweat droplets on your forehead, you might just be pretending the Christian life. And if that's you, if you've been just living a religious life, but you've never really cared about pursuing Christ, then all you need to do is confess. You just need to confess your spiritual condition to the Lord. You just need to confess that you need him. You need his righteousness. And then you just need to start pursuing. You just need to start running. Yeah, you're not gonna be in shape. Start trotting. Start jogging. Get going. Get after Jesus. Pursue him in love. Paul's simple point is that Jesus pursued and seized him first. And so his own strenuous effort is simply a response to seize Jesus in return. I mean, Paul's motto, after all, in chapter one is to live is Christ and to die is gain. To gain what? Christ. To live is Christ, to die is to gain Christ. That's a cross-centered focus. So let us continue growing in our relationship with him by this regular act 
of confession. The next action we need to take in living the cross-centered life is to resolve. We need to resolve ourselves. We need to firmly decide in our minds how we are going to live this cross-centered life. Look at verses 13 through 14. Paul resolved himself to one thing. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, Paul interrupts his testimony that he's been sharing with a direct address to the church. Brothers, brothers and sisters, what grabs their attention, look at me in the eyes, listen. Because what he wants to tell them is that everything I've been saying is not just my own personal story. It's not just what I do. We all need to do this. So brothers, listen up. And Paul then begins to share his resolve to run a spiritual race after Jesus. And as a veteran runner, he is going to share his running strategies for believers to follow. Now, Paul really loved sports. I believe that if he had cable TV back then, he'd have ESPN on all the time. He talks about sports illustrations so much through many of his letters. Now, the Greeks, they had two famous events. They had the Olympic Games, which were held in Olympia uh, in honor of the pagan god Zeus. And they had the Isthmian Games, which were hosted in Corinth in honor of Poseidon. And since Paul ministered in Corinth for about three years, it's likely that he would have had a chance to see some of those Isthmian Games These games originated centuries before Jesus was born, and by this time in history, they included several events, 400-meter races, uh, 1,000-meter, 5,000-meter. They also included things like wrestling, boxing, chariot races, a pentathlon involving a foot race, discus and javelin throws. They even had an event that was equivalent of an MMA fight. It was wrestling mixed with boxing and virtually no rules. They were very popular attractions as they are today. Now, these ancient competitors would train for 10 months, followed by a month of supervised workouts in the gymnasiums in Corinth. And as you all know, any kind of athletic competition requires rigorous training, it requires discipline, focus, you need to know the rules, and you need to have a commitment to winning. This is the same for us in our Christian race, in our spiritual race for Christ. We need the same things. So Paul explains how his first strategy in running is that he resolves to forget the past. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, one singular focus, forgetting what lies behind is the first thing. This simply means that he doesn't allow anything positive or negative to distract him from running. He does not rest on any of his previous achievements as indication that he's done, and he does not allow any mistakes he has made in the past to hinder him in the present. Now, this doesn't suggest that if you have some kind of sin in your past that is left unresolved and unreconciled, unconfessed, that you just forget about it. That is not what Paul is saying. But he is saying that you do not allow your present running to be defined by your past sins. 
Any of you who have competed in a track or cross-country event know that you cannot expect to win by looking behind you. If you're busy paying attention to everyone behind or beside you, then you will slow down or even fall. And this is exactly what happened to John Landy in his famous race against Roger Bannister in 1954. Both men had recently broke the the four-minute barrier on the mile run. And as they were running the mile race and they rounded the final corner, Landy glanced over his shoulder to see his opponent's position. And at that moment, Bannister passed by him and finished the race in first place, one second ahead of him. This famous sporting moment, as you can see on the screen, was caught on camera. You can see Landy looking over his shoulder. You have to forget what lies behind and keep your eyes on the goal at all times. At the same time, though, if you're winning, if you are in the lead, but the game is not over, you can't stop competing. You haven't won yet. You don't want to be listed among the many embarrassing instances of athletes who celebrated too early, only to lose in the end. You don't want to be like the Falcons, who were up 28-3 to in Super Bowl 51 against the Patriots, with only two minutes left in the third quarter. It seemed like they had sealed the deal. But nobody will forget how the Patriots rallied to score 31 unanswered points and win the championship in overtime. The Falcons had a commanding lead, but they didn't finish the race. So we ourselves ought to reflect. We ought to reflect on the past. I'm not saying that you should never think about the past. Certainly you should dwell on the wonderful things God has done for you. And you should celebrate them You should praise God for them, but you should not live in the past. You should never excuse ourselves from running the race because of what has already happened. And that's why the second thing Paul resolved to do is embrace the present. He wrote, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. A cross-centered life is one that embraces the present need to strain every spiritual muscle to its limit in order to reach the finish line. The picture is that of a runner who is near the finish line. He is exhausted, spreading his arms out wide and pushing his torso across the finish line in order to make it. This means that If we have this resolution, it means we are resolved to set ourselves busy accomplishing the present tasks God has for us to do. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we Toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. How do you train for godliness? How do you do it? You do it through the routine exercises of spiritual disciplines, through prayer, and through the nutritional intake of the Word. Jesus reminds us that his word is the key to sanctification. He quoted the Old Testament to Satan when he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And he prayed in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. While we train for godliness, we also need to cast off and repent of our sin. That's the second thing we need to do. Hebrews 12.1 tells us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The cares and temptations of this world cling to and weigh us down. They can even stunt our spiritual growth. They can injure us and even disqualify us in a race. We have to cast these things off. We have to routinely have a pattern of repenting of our sins and putting on righteousness in its place so that we can run the race with endurance. So you have to examine yourself and ask, what weights do I need to be putting off? What things am I clinging to that hinder me from clinging to Jesus? We can't let pride, anger, and bitterness or suffering keep us from running the race. Don't let depression, social media, video games, movies, pornography, drunkenness, sexual immorality, or any other sinful entanglement keep you from running. The earthly pleasure of sin is never worth more than the eternal joy of knowing Christ. So cast it off and embrace the present run. But finally, you need to resolve to look to the future. Forget the past, embrace the present, look to the future. This is your motivation to run with endurance when things are hard, when you are tired. Paul wrote, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward what? The goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Every athlete is motivated by something to compete and win. It could be just wanting to be healthy. Maybe that's why you like to run. Maybe you're doing it for money, fame, pride, or a desire to accomplish something great and overcome the odds. But Paul tells us the most important motivation is the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Just as the Olympic runner imagines hearing his name called and ascending the platform to receive the crown, We are motivated by the future prize at the end of our race. For believers, the prize isn't the resurrection. It's not heaven. It's what we get when we're there. It's who we get. It's what occurs at the resurrection. It's what occurs in heaven. The prize of full and perfect fellowship with the one who saved us by his blood. The prize is a person, not a location. Having the right motivation not only gets you signed up in the race, it helps you push past all the hard parts of a race. Most runners in a marathon at some point hit the wall. It's the moment when your legs feel like jelly and lead at the same time, that they weigh two tons each. And every additional step that you take, it requires sheer willpower and you start to doubt whether you are going to make it to the end of the race or not. Christians often hit the wall, spiritually speaking. It's that moment when you're incurring the painful costs of living and suffering for Jesus and you start to ask yourself, is it worth it? Can I keep doing it? As you live for him, you become exhausted as you battle against sin. You chop down one tree of sin only to find a forest of sin behind it. 
As you suffer for Jesus, you look around to see you're losing your friends, your reputation. People make fun of you for your beliefs and slander you. You're losing out on career advancement and on opportunities to do all the things you want to do. So how do you push through when you hit the wall? If you became a Christian because you thought the gospel promised an easy life or happiness or personal fulfillment, then you're not going to make it. You've got the wrong motivation and you will be at risk of giving up on the race. Jesus warned that many people who initially receive the gospel will have hearts like rocky soil or thorns and weeds. In both instances, the gospel appears to have taken root in that person's life and that, that seed sprouts out, but then the root of the plant withers away and proves unfruitful because it's choked out by the cares of the world and is scorched by the heat of persecution. While they initially received the gospel with joy, it was under wrong motivations and pretense, and so they did not endure to the end. But when we are rightly motivated by knowing Christ and the prize of knowing him fully in heaven, then we will be able to push through the wall and finish the race in the strength that God provides. The orientation of our eyes on Jesus is what helps us resolve to live a cross-centered life. So finally, the last action that Paul calls us to in order to live a cross-centered life is to conform. Look at verses 15 through 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul brings this section to conclusion by calling all believers to conform to the right attitude. Even though Paul confessed he wasn't perfect at the beginning of this passage, he does use the same Greek word in this verse. But he's not contradicting himself. He's using it in a different way, this word in a diff- with a different meaning. He's using it to indicate not perfection morally, but spiritual maturity. In other words, what he's saying is, even though I'm not perfect, I am mature, and so is everyone else who has a cross-centered attitude like me. Now, this isn't an optional attitude for Christians. It's not something that only super-Christians have, and I'm just a normal, plain Christian, and I'll never be like Paul. It's the way of thinking that we all need to adopt and continually conform ourselves to. Otherwise, we will never grow in spiritual maturity. You see, our lifestyle, our actions are born out of our attitudes, how we think. So let me give you an example. How about my attitude toward my wife? If I have high and lofty thoughts about my wife, then it will cause my actions to reflect that in how I love and pursue her. The opposite would be true. That's why Paul talks a lot about this throughout this letter about having the right attitude, the right mindset to put on the mind of Christ, how we are to be like-minded and one-souled with each other regarding the gospel. And while having the right attitude is not negotiable, Paul does recognize, practically speaking, that not everyone in the church is at the same level of spiritual maturity. All of us are at different places on our journey of sanctification. 
We have some people here in this room who are baby Christians, brand new Christians, people who have just been a Christian for a year or two. We have people who have been walking with Jesus for a long time. And the rest of us are scattered and spread out somewhere in the middle. <clears throat> because of this, we all don't have the same level of understanding as it relates to the Christian life. That's why Paul says in verse 15, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. He's not saying, hey, you need to have the same attitude as me, and if you don't, God's going to straighten you out. Just watch out. That's not what he's saying. Remember, he's talking very, very tenderly. Brothers. He's talking to his brothers. Everyone, nobody's disagreeing with Paul that we need to be cross-centered. What he's saying is, you all know we need to pursue Christ, but if you have any blind spots that are hindering your pursuit of Jesus, I trust God will show you that so that you can grow. This is supposed to be encouraging. We all have blind spots by, by very definition of them. I don't know where they are. You don't know where your blind spots are, but God does. And he will graciously help reveal them to you and to me. He won't leave us high and dry or stuck in some wrong thinking or pattern of sin. Paul reminded us in chapter 1 verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So how will God reveal your weaknesses to you? Well, the same way he reveals anything to us through the Holy Spirit and illuminating our hearts and minds through God's word. Just like the Philippians, we are having God's truth revealed to us right now as we look at this text, as we go to Bible studies, life groups, or during our fellowship with others in general, as we sharpen and stir one another up, we mature in our thinking and conform more and more to the right attitude. So if you're not running the race, if you get sidetracked, if you hit the wall, if you get cramps or twist your ankle, or if you start getting lazy, God is going to graciously work on you. He may do it gently while you're reading your Bible and praying. He may do it through a friend in church or through your spouse or even your children exposing your sin. He may do it by disciplining you as a father lovingly disciplines his children. One way or the other, God is going to complete his work in you. You are going to cross that finish line because he has called you to it. But no matter where you are at in your spiritual growth, one thing we all need to do is to conform to the right direction. He concludes in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. No matter where you're at in your spiritual walk with the Lord, hold true to what you have already attained. Paul doesn't want the church to stumble and get tripped up by the thought that some of us aren't where we should be in our maturity. Don't get preoccupied overanalyzing yourself and navel-gazing. There is no benefit to dwelling on where you are at spiritually in this moment. As Paul mentioned earlier, forget the past, embrace the present, and look to Christ. What matters is that you keep running in the right direction. In other words, let's keep following the gospel path we've already been walking on. Let us keep building on our past progress. <clears throat> what have we attained already? What is it that we are to hold fast to? What is the right direction? What is the lane that we're supposed to keep running in? 
Paul wrote in verse three of this chapter, we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's the gospel 101. We've already tamed this. It's transformed our hearts and made us a new creation. We don't put any confidence in the flesh. That means we don't trust in our efforts to save us, only in Jesus Christ alone. And we live and worship by the Spirit of God. That's what we need to hold true to. If you're already maturing your thinking, Praise the Lord. Hold true to what you have attained and keep running. If you realize that you've been wasting your years away, not pursuing the Lord as you ought, or if you've recently stumbled and lost sight of the prize, don't panic. Genuine believers are a work in progress. None of us have arrived yet. Continue to live out what you have already learned And let us keep the cross at the center focus. Let us live by the Spirit and live as worthy citizens of heaven. Pastor and theologian David Pryor wrote, We never move on from the cross, only into a more profound understanding of the cross. The cross is of first importance to the true believer. God sent his son to die on the cross to save sinners from damnation. And then when he calls us unto salvation, he does so so that we will have a relationship with his son. This is the most essential truth that must be at the very center of our lives. It must influence everything we do, think, or say. And what a joyful, life-giving truth God calls us to focus on. Our text reminds us that in order to grow in relationship with Christ, we have to be cross-centered. We have to regularly confess our need for Jesus. We have to regularly resolve to pursue Jesus, and we have to constantly conform ourselves to the cross of Jesus. The great Protestant preacher and reformer Martin Luther was heard saying once, I preach as though Christ were crucified yesterday rose from the dead today, and is coming back to earth again tomorrow. May we adopt that motto in our lives and live a cross-centered life as if Jesus was crucified yesterday, that he rose from the dead this morning, and is coming back tomorrow. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we are so unworthy of your love. We are so unworthy of your salvation, but you have lavished it on us because of your goodness, because of your mercy and your kindness, your grace. So we are so thankful. Lord, we're so, so thankful that you have called us to be in a relationship with you, that you have given us your son's righteousness so that we can be in your presence And I pray that you would help us to put to death anything in our life that would cause us to not consider the gospel and the cross as the central focus of our lives, that you would cause us to put to death anything that thinks, that that we would think anything is more worthy than knowing Christ. And I pray that you would help us to just continually grow in our love and passion for Christ, for who he is and what he's done for us. 
I just pray, Lord, that you will light that fire and that fervor in our hearts, that it would become evident, that we would seek to live in the power of the resurrection, that we would live to suffer as Christ did, so that we might gain Christ. Help us to persevere, Lord, in the strength you provide until the day of our resurrection comes. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.